Hello and welcome to Runway Girl Network in Conversation, a deep dive into aviation and the passenger experience. I'm RGN contributing editor John Walton, and today I'm in conversation with software architect Kai Koenig. We're talking about New Zealand aviation and the trans-Tasman market between New Zealand and Australia. Kai, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey John, thanks for having me on the show. Great to talk to you. Um, yeah, my, like you said, my name is Kai Koenig, and um, I am originally from Germany, moved to New Zealand about 11-ish years ago, and have lived down here um, since then, essentially. And I travel quite a bit between Australia and New Zealand, um, and usually continue on from Australia to Europe in some instances as well. And I've got yeah a few opinions I'm happy to share you know about the trans-Tasman market and the passenger experience delivered by the current um, competitors in that market. Fantastic. I mean, one of the really interesting things for me about the trans-Tasman market is that it's kind of a pathfinder and kind of a bellwether, um, partly because there's so few real competitors in the market, right? I mean, you have Air New Zealand, obviously. They fly a lot of uh, a lot of aircraft around, including uh, wide bodies from Auckland to the large Australian cities, but then a lot of A320 aircraft between smaller cities on both sides of the Tasman. Um, you've then got Qantas, who have a, uh, a New Zealand subsidiary called Jet Connect, of course, who um, do uh, flying from the major cities in New Zealand to the major cities in Australia. And uh, then Jetstar is a... Uh, an LCC and a bunch of uh, other, I guess, large network carriers, I guess you'd call them, who do uh, a bunch of tag flights, right? Yeah, correct. And I mean, one airline you forgot is obviously Virgin or, you know, the former Pacific Blue. Uh, of course. Who also serve the trans-Tasman market. And, you know, when, when you what you called with tag flights, that's probably, you know, a good way to, to say it. So we've got a bunch of airlines coming in from Asia that mainly probably would go to Australia and just tag a leg on to Auckland, usually, or, you know, in one instance to Wellington now. And then from the other side, we've got um, Lan Chile, and there used to be Aerolinas Argentinas, and I'm not sure if they still fly to Auckland, who actually come from South America and do a quick stop over in Auckland, and you can usually book a leg to Sydney um, from there if you want to. Right, exactly. So what you kind of have is a bunch of extra flights into Auckland um, on these other airlines, including, of course, uh, Emirates, uh, who operates four A380s into Auckland these days. It's their largest uh, A380 outstation uh, in terms of having a number of super jumbos on the ground at any one time in the world, Uh, more than New York even, uh, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they can pull that off, you know, that the Australian and New Zealand market is so strong that it's worthwhile doing that for them. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, they fly in from Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. It's not just that one of those three airports is, um, I guess, uh, an expensive place to park an E380 for a day. It's, uh, it's it's really impressive that the market can um, can support that. And whenever I fly on those flights, they're actually relatively full. Um, although the, the last time I was... Um, Flying with my parents, and I'd uh, upgraded us up to the to the front of the cabin. We ended up flying with Sir Michael Bishop, the former CEO of British Midland BMI, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, yeah, pretty it's, amazing. It's kind of interesting, you know, when you look at the when you look at the premium market out of Auckland, you there is a lot of competition, particularly from there, and you can get really cheap tickets between Auckland and Australia, East Coast at least. When, when I say East Coast, I mean like, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, those kind of markets. Yeah. And you you can get them for just slightly above 500 on Emirates sometimes. Mm-hmm. 
and you can get them way cheaper on Lan Chile. Um, I had business class return flights on Lan Chile for around 600 New Zealand. Yeah, which these days is about 450 American or so, something like yeah. that. Um, which isn't bad for a sort of three to four hour flight each way, depending on winds. Um, yeah, the downside with Lan Chile is um, their scheduling is probably you know off quite a bit <laughs> it's a, it's an so, optimistic schedule isn't it <laughs> it's a very optimistic schedule and um i found myself probably half of the time i used them being rebooked onto a Qantas flight because they had accumulated something like you know between six and 12 hours delay and i proactively basically called them and said like book me on the Qantas service at whatever seven o'clock or something like that yeah the one where you know i would like to, <laughs> to actually get home um yeah. but what i find really interesting about this market is that so on the one hand you have these airlines flying their latest and greatest um wide bodies you know whether that's land 787 or emirates a380s um, but then you also have a bunch of well fairly bare bones aircraft um and it's not just jetstar i mean we expect jetstar to have its you know 29 inch pitch and no entertainment no connectivity um, but Virgin Australia doesn't have a huge amount of connectivity either, does it? Well, not in terms of connectivity. It doesn't have uh, a huge amount of entertainment on board. No, they don't, basically. I mean, it, it's from, from that point of view, the service is bare bones, essentially. But, um, you know, Virgin at least has, they have their, you know, what used to be premium economy and what they now call business, uh, which is more like, you know, a premium economy seating. Um, yeah, I mean, they've, case. they've now got the proper recliners that you'd expect in, I guess, US domestic first or um, domestic business class around Australia. Yes. Um, they used to just have the middle seat free Euro business style thing. Um, but of course, that Euro business thing is all that Air New Zealand offers unless you're on one of their wide bodies, right? Correct. It's basically called Works Deluxe in their offering. And you pay, I don't know, something, you know, maybe about 100 to as to a few more hundred dollars extra if you want that and all it gives you is the the um, middle seat will be blocked you usually end up in one of the first two rows on either either side of the um of the aisle i think and um you don't even get lounge access for that which is kind of really weird from my point of view yeah exactly and of course works deluxe is part of um new zealand's fairly innovative uh seats to suit fare structure um, where if you're buying from Air New Zealand, which most people around here do, um, you have the choice of four categories of seat, right? So there's seat, which is fairly self-explanatory, seat plus bag, again. Um, then the works, which is an old-school economy meal um, and a bag and uh, free in-flight entertainment. Um, the, the seat and seat plus bag get free TV, but not movies, if memory serves. Yes. Um, yeah. And then Works Deluxe, I think you get a second bag and you get that seat, uh, empty seat next to you. Yes, so, correct. So you get a second second bag as well. I forgot yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, and in terms of the pricing, it tends to be basically 1.5 times the, uh, the Works fare. Um, so it's not a terrible deal. Um, and it's at least easy to book, right? It's not something where you have to call them up and say, I'd like to book this. Um, but it, it is really interesting that that's the only uh, premium offering that they have across the Tasman these days. Yeah, and I think, you know, when they introduced that a few years ago, obviously they they tried to get into a market 
that suits or that packs more people into a plane, right? And they used yeah. to have a business class seating, which was two rows with four seats each. So they had eight, eight business class seats in those A320s mm-hmm. on the Testament until a few years ago. And they were actually, I think, well-priced and also well-utilized. You know, most times when I used them, that cabin seemed to be full, essentially. And obviously, you never know if it's, you know, mostly people who paid for it or if it's upgraders from economy, frequent flyers. But at least people had a way to use their air points and status points to actually apply those upgrades. So, you know, whenever airlines say, yeah, we don't make money because it's only an upgrade cabin, I'm the first person to actually debate that because obviously if you upgrade people into that cabin and they pay with points or whatever currency of the frequent flyer program you have, the airline gets money from that because it's essentially a separate business. But, you know, that that's how airlines like to argue, oh, you know, we can't make money with those cabins because um, no one pays for them. Sure, they pay with, for them just in a different currency. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's one of those um, one of issues of airline accounting um, that, that actually, if you start pulling that kind of cabin out, you do take a hit in terms of the, the I guess, the value proposition. Uh, particularly for frequent flyers who, um, you know, who, who, who want and like to be comfortable. I mean, if you're flying to, um, the States and you're trying and you're considering connecting, uh, let's say going from, from somewhere in Australia to the States where you can fly via New Zealand and connect via New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can fly, um, Qantas and connect via Sydney or Melbourne. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to do the connection via Sydney and Melbourne if you want to fly business class because you'll get a business class seat all the way through. If you fly Air New Zealand, um, unless you're going to one of the larger cities where there's um, uh, a wide body that Air New Zealand serves, you're going to end up in this not quite business class um, with with a lot less comfort than than the competition is offering. Yeah, and I'm I'm really struggling to understand the the rationale behind that because Air New Zealand tries to position itself as an airline for the Australian market as well, and they they want that that basically traffic from Australia coming into their Auckland hub. Yeah. But for premium passengers, the offering is really substandard. And you're totally right. You know, that basically feeds through the whole network and through the whole mindset of what kind of people you you attract with your offering. I can, I mean, I don't know if my example personally is typical or not, but I used to fly in New Zealand quite a lot. Um, and then, at, and I used the, the business class cabin on the Tasman, as well for paid fares when they were offering a decent deal, but also for upgrading into it. And um, after they took that away and essentially made it an all economy class aircraft, for sure, with like a middle seat free, um, I had issues with that and actually ended up flying in New Zealand a lot less. And because that led then to me not having, you know, the highest status in Air New Zealand anymore after a while. I also changed my long-haul flying patterns. patterns. I was using Air New Zealand a lot to go to the US Mm -hmm. and to go to Europe and sometimes also in their premium cabins. And I haven't done that at all since they essentially, you know, moved away from a premium offering on the Tasman. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's particularly unusual. I mean, especially for people in New Zealand who don't live in Auckland. Um, I, I guess if you live in Auckland, then the the landscape is a little bit different. But for someone who lives in Wellington, you know, which is where the government is, which is where the film industry is, which is where a lot of New Zealand's tech industry is, um, I miss people who do a lot of flying. Um, 
unless you have a lock-in to Air New Zealand, like a lot of the government does, um, it's it's very attractive to go business class to business class rather than economy class to business class, especially since you've got a change terminal at Auckland still. Um, yeah, and the terminal change in Auckland, I mean, that's it's not terrible, but it's something that is not really great, right? I mean... To be fair, the terminal change in Sydney, if you have to switch between domestic and international, isn't great either. Yeah. But at least if I go, let's say, to the US via Sydney, um, I stay in the same terminal, do a quick transfer, and I'm in the in the Qantas lounge in like 10 minutes, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Yeah, Sydney does a really good job of that, actually. I've always been impressed when I'm traveling um, through Sydney, international to international connections, um, just how well they um, they, they manage to, to, to arrange themselves. It's, it's pretty smart. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is... We know what also comes to mind. Let's say you're not flying business class to the US, for example. Let's say you fly, you want to fly premium economy. The interesting difference between Air New Zealand and Qantas across the Tasman, you know, depending on who you use for the long haul, is that Australians who would book a flight to the US via Auckland get like economy, obviously, that would be a works ticket to Auckland, and then a premium economy seat on the Air New Zealand white body service. If I did the same thing via Sydney on Qantas, I usually get a business class seat for Wellington to Sydney and then a premium economy seat from Sydney to LAX, for example. Interesting. Is that because you have Qantas status, do you think? No, that is actually depending on the availability of certain booking classes. So if you book a premium economy long haul ticket and a certain booking class is available, like the basically the you know most discounted trans-Tasman business class, booking class uh, for for the Wellington to Sydney lag, you will be booked into that. Yeah. Interesting. That's I don't think that's something that, that a lot of people know about. That's that's a that's a real benefit actually because that's it's kind of the same issue that we a lot of airlines are hitting around um, the world as as premium economy becomes much more popular and much more frequently installed on aircraft is the okay, well, we're a hub carrier, but we don't really offer a premium economy seat. Um, on the short haul connection, even though we do on the long haul connection, um, mm. which is which is tricky. Um, now let's talk briefly about in flight connectivity. Okay, so there's very little in flight connectivity coming into and out of New Zealand at the moment. It's basically restricted to the um, international airlines that fly in. Like Emirates has uh, some connectivity, and Singapore Airlines has some connectivity, and uh, I'm not sure that any of the others flying in do, unless. You're aware of anything? I'm not particularly aware of anything into New Zealand. Into Australia, there's a bit more. I mean, there's yeah. like Scoot, for example, doing a really good job with their their um, connectivity mm-hmm. and a bunch of other ones which don't really fly to NZ. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, of course, that will be changing um, in 2017. Um, Happy New Year, by the way. And, Happy New Year, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, Qantas, of course, will be having its um, Viasat uh, KA bands installed on domestic 737s, but not on the uh, New Zealand-operated fleet that goes across the Tasman. Um, that's largely because the KA band solution they have is operated by the NBN, which is the National Broadband Network, if memory serves. That's the that's the acronym. That's basically the, the Australian um, government-run rollout of uh, of 
of fiber. Essentially. Yeah, theoretically, fast fiber to the to the home and the business. But in uh, rural and remote areas, uh, they use a, a pair of KA band satellites. And Qantas and Viasat have contracted with them for some of that capacity before Viasat launched its own satellite. So that's Qantas. So people won't have connectivity to Australia, but they'll have connectivity within Australia. And then onwards on some aircraft, um, the A330-200 fleet is getting a KU-band solution, um, which will allow them to offer connectivity into uh, into Asia, which is where those aircraft mainly fly, and uh, also across uh, Australia when they do their domestic legs too. I was um, going to say that the A330 fleet in, of Qantas is doing a lot of Perth to the East Coast runs nowadays. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and also a fair bit of um, Sydney to Melbourne hopping, because um, they need that capacity on, what is it, the world's fourth busiest air route or something yeah something like that yeah, yeah. um so before they build a train which is you know something they've been doing for the last 20 years um they they need those wide bodies um but so that's the Qantas solution um virgin australia is promising something but they haven't revealed who um and then virgin australia's partner air new zealand is going uh in marsat global express ka band um full fleet and they'll start with uh, start testing on the Tasman. Um, as I understand it, they'll start testing with the uh, new aircraft that will be delivered from Airbus um, relatively soon, actually, um, which is a, a, some expansion aircraft. And then uh, they'll refit both the domestic fleets um, because they have uh, domestic jet fleets uh, flying between the major cities in New Zealand. And then they'll add that on to the long haul as well. Um, but so what's your feeling, Kai, about the level of pent-up demand among most New Zealand flyers for um, for connectivity, I guess, both within New Zealand and on the Trans-Hasman market? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, Air New Zealand tried a solution a few years ago mm-hmm. to offer cell phone and connectivity services um, for domestic flights, mainly. And that was gone within a year's time back then because people didn't really want it. It was ridiculously overpriced. And so in general, you know, not really well received. I would probably argue that that any solution for New Zealand domestic flights is kind of overkill, realistically, because, I mean, when you think about like a Wellington to Auckland flight, flight time is kind of like 50 minutes, give and take. And if it's available from, let's say, 10,000 feet or cruising altitude to top of descent or something like that, mm-hmm. it means you have like service for 15, 20 minutes, something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's like, why would I even bother, you know, to, to, to do that? Um, the, I think, I'm not quite sure what the longest New Zealand domestic jet service would be, but probably it Auckland would be something like Dunedin or Invercargill or something. Yeah. 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 Um, and that would be a flight of maybe a bit more than two hours, mm-hmm. like two two fifteen, two twenty, something like that. Yeah. Even on that duration, it's kind of marginal, I would think. Yeah. Um, you know, unless it's like super cheap and it comes as a commodity, you know, where you basically, or maybe you can sign up for something for the whole year, pay a really cheap amount of money. I would probably personally not bother for those kind of flights and this kind of duration. Yeah, I mean, it really is going to be a question for New Zealand about what they um, what they can get in terms of the cost per bit from Inmarsat, um, you know, and and then how they then pass that on to consumers. Because I think you're right for the for the domestic. Um, you know, it, it's one of those 
things that oh, it'd be nice to be able to you know check email and I guess reply to it on a tablet or something. But uh, in honesty, these days most people have um, you know cell phones that can do email, and so if you're um, you know able to dash out replies to the email either before the doors close and then of course offline in flight. Um, yeah, I, I, I concur. There doesn't feel to be a huge killer app just because of the size of New Zealand. Um, it's yeah. a relatively small country and, and you're just not in the air for that long. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different story if you look at, for example, Australia, right? Like if I do a Sydney to Perth flight, which would be something around the five hour mark or so, yeah, that's a totally different story, right? Or if you look at markets like the US where you go like East Coast to West Coast or even, you know, between somewhere in the middle of the country where your flight times are like three, four, five hours. That's kind of a different story. Um, yeah. But I feel like for our short flights domestic in New Zealand, I'm not sure what the market adoption will be, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see, won't it? Um, you know, there, there may well be just some uh, a bunch of latent demand and that um, New Zealand can, can, I guess, capitalize on with, um, you know, advertising partnerships or something like that, that, Maybe able to you know hear watch this video and uh, uh, you know and then you get your uh, free connectivity for for social media or whatnot. Yeah, but, um, I mean, I mean, the story is probably different when you look at the transtasman flights. You yeah, know, because for a flight of three or depending on where to four hours, I could see some more use cases. You know, if I want to do certain work that I can only do online. I might be willing to part with I don't know ten bucks or something like that yeah. for you know connectivity on that flight. Um, but in those cases, I think it will be a question of pricing. And you know, any any airline offering a connectivity service would get the need to get the pricing right. Um, because when you look at some of the long haul offerings for for connectivity, for example, Scoot, I think and they charge about twenty bucks. Yeah, that's right for long haul and then you can even have it for a day or $24 something like for a day so you get it for a potential connection flight of Singapore as well Yeah. or Finnair which I used recently to go between Helsinki and Singapore they have in-flight connectivity for free in business class you know which I find actually the right thing to do because you know Mm. if you fork out a lot of money for a ticket you know that amount of money uh, you know a $20 internet voucher shouldn't be really too hard for an airline to do essentially and in economy it is around 20 dollars i think if i remember correctly for um for the whole flight which is like an 11 ish hour flight mm-hmm. and that's kind of the pricing that is appropriate for that you know if i wanted yeah. to do some work or you know stay in touch with people that might be that it's worthwhile 20 dollars for me yeah absolutely um and i, I think that also it helps that the way that the Trans-Hasman flights are timed, um, because the majority of them, um, certainly the New Zealand ones are based in New Zealand, um, the uh, Qantas ones are based in New Zealand too. Um, and basically you have a six o'clock departure in the morning, uh, then it returns uh, for a, a 3 p.m. departure in the afternoon, and then it returns back at midnight, and then you have that, that six-hour sort of parked overnight uh, time. So that's actually kind yes. of handy in terms of creating demand because you'll have the um, the demand at the beginning of the day for people to um, you know sort of got, start getting caught up with work as they're sort of flying off at six o'clock in the morning and perhaps haven't had a chance to um, you know really sort of look at everything that comes in, especially if um, you know it's coming from uh, people in other time zones. Um, 
and then sort of on the the, the return from that flight and the um, mid-afternoon to Australia, that's prime working time. And so, you know, so, oh, yeah, I've got a good two, two and a half, three hours of, uh, of online work in. Um, and then, of course, in the evening, it's, you know, time for people to catch up or, um, you know, really just uh, get some TV watching done if uh, the system enables streaming um, or just, you know, catch up with friends and family on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I think there's, there's, there is a, I'm fairly bullish on the market there. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, what I don't see it on the domestic. That's, that's the thing, right? So, so on the transessment market, what would be like an expectation be from your point of view, how much they should charge for it? I, I think it really depends whether or not you have the opportunity to do that, to then connect on a connecting flight as well. Um, and I realize I just use the word connecting far too many times in that sentence. Um, <laughs> but so if you're flying Qantas into Sydney and then you're flying onwards to somewhere else, um, if Qantas can give you like an all day pass for 20, 25 bucks, I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, mm-hmm. for just one flight, um, these days, given the amount that it's, that, that, I mean, getting online on, uh, here in New Zealand is really cheap, both in terms of, um, you know, home connections and cell data. Um, really cheap compared with other other countries of a similar development level. So I think that people are a little bit um, sceptical of paying too much for in-flight connectivity. So if they can keep it under 20 bucks for a flight, um, and ideally under 15, that seems to me to be a kind of a of a sweet spot. Um, but, you know, and, it, it will really depend. And would that be um, a certain amount of data capped at, I don't know, whatever, 50 or 100 meg from your point of view? Or would that be essentially unlimited whatever you want to use right well that's a big question isn't it i mean these days you just sneeze and your phone's used 100 meg of data yeah um but this is one of those big questions about in-flight connectivity right is do you go for an unlimited uh package or do you go for a uh a data cap or a per meg kind of uh charging rate um there are arguments for both and i think Particularly in New Zealand and Australia, there are arguments for both because people are used to having to monitor that on their own devices. Um, yes, more so perhaps extent. more so perhaps than in Europe or the States, uh, just in the way that the mobile phone um, contracts and pay as you go are structured here, and in the way that home uh, internet has been structured here. I mean, not necessarily still these days, but within the last few years, people have people remember the oh how many mega Bit, uh, so how many megabytes do I have on this uh, on my phone package and so on right before yeah. before the prices started dropping yeah um, that, that is true I mean I'm, for home connection it has probably changed by now um, I think most people are on unlimited connections for mobile data that is still true I found it actually quite quite interesting that you said like you find New Zealand kind of cheap to get connected yeah um, I find that really interesting because it doesn't feel to me Huh. at all interesting particularly when i go to you know places like germany for example and i just pop like three or five gig of data on a prepaid card that is way cheaper over there than doing the same thing here oh but don't forget if you've got a german id card it's a lot more it's a lot easier for you to get that rather than the rest of us um who have to you know go and buy a 50 euro sim card with some data on it um it's a bit of a faff for those of us who aren't um who aren't german uh, to to pick up a, a data sim in Germany, uh, better than it used yeah, but, to be, I mean, but 
Um, but but even in the UK, you know, you go to like a Labara shop at the airport and you get like a sim with lots of data on it, like 10 oh, gig or something like that yeah, for like yeah. 30 quid. Oh, yeah. You get an, an unlimited data on, on the three network for, for £25. Um, but yeah. that's $50 New Zealand. And it's, you know, it's that you can get a fair, fair whack of data in New Zealand for that price. Um, and it's certainly a lot cheaper than the US, of course, uh, which is which is crazy expensive for mobile data um, yes but, I, but, agree, I agree with that yeah. yeah and i guess i think there's also a thing that kiwis and, and australians too are very well traveled internationally so they're actually quite used to having to figure this stuff out and so i think there's going to be a, a real opportunity for for the airlines to, to work with an educated customer base on this um and potentially to then also work with people like telecom uh telecom companies to to i guess you know today's Let's say uh, twenty free megs for Vodafone customers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that kind of thing um, as part yeah, of their, I mean, I, their Aussie New Zealand roaming deal. I, I think I have to, you know, just thinking about it for a few minutes now. Basically, I think if if there was a traffic cap on any in-flight package, I would probably not use it that much. Yeah, I mean, unless you know the the cap is something like you know whatever a gig or something right. or two gig or whatever you know a, a cap that wouldn't really bother me. But if they give me a package something like I don't know, you pay fifteen bucks and you get hundred megabyte. Yeah, no, I will rather <laughs> be offline and not right. do anything you know online. Yeah, exactly. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, and and I think part of the part of the issue is that um, the the way that the airlines choose to present this. And the the road they go down in terms of having a per megabit package or an unlimited package and what those pricing options are, that will determine a lot of how in-flight connectivity is perceived here. Um, So I guess in the Uh same way that in the States, a lot of people for many years thought of in-flight connectivity as expensive and slow because the only thing that was really available widespread was um, the old air-to-ground package, right, which is 10 megs to the plane. Um, which by the time you start sharing that with 150 friends gets pretty slow. Um, yeah, and so people exactly. still think about, you know, in-flight connectivity as being slow and um, occasionally clunky and expensive. Now, if the airlines here are smart, they'll kind of take a loss leader for a year or two on it, I reckon. Um, but then, um, you know, so, so, so even if that means that they're, they're not making a lot of money on it, um, just to make make it very very clear that this is a a thing that people can start to get used to, and it's an opportunity that's there, and then people will kind of change their behaviour, and they won't assume that being on a plane means being cut off, um, and so they'll be able to you know stay on that Slack channel at work, um, you know to to get those texts from home and and to you know let people know that they're that they're in the air, um, and yeah, I think that. <laughs> That that seems like a much better option for them, I think, than than um, than insisting on instant profitability. I would agree. The problem is when you look at like particularly Air New Zealand, you nowadays see an airline that is essentially driven by accounting and mm-hmm. by accountants, and not by people who want to seriously invest into the passenger experience. So. My that's my personal experience with New Zealand. They basically think from quarter to quarter, you know, and they even make stupid, stupid obvious mistakes like you know changing the quality of the 
of the wines in business class on the long haul fleet, you know, and everyone basically goes off in rails and says like, what is this shit really? Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of, you know, they don't seem to do that long-term thinking and like accepting, for example, a loss leading structure for in-flight connectivity for a while to get people interested, to create a market, to create or to hook people into, you know, being online in the first place. My, I would be very surprised if they come up with anything that is not about instant profitability. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that's a real challenge. Um, and, and it'll be really interesting to see what, what, what they pick and what Qantas picks and what Virgin Australia's eventual, um, supplier, uh, helps them to do as well. Um, because, you know, with that partnership between Virgin Australia and Air New Zealand, there's already that difference in passenger experience, right? The Virgin plane is pretty bare bones down the back, whereas Air New Zealand has on-demand IFE, uh, power and USB connectivity. I mean, you can, um, do, do a fair amount of stuff with that Air New Zealand system, even if you haven't paid for the, uh, for that works ticket. So yeah, it'll, it'll be an interesting year, I think, for the, for the trans-Tasma market. Yeah. The other thing that is kind of, you know, something to consider is if Qantas eventually gets into in-flight connectivity domestic in Australia mm. and at some point in the future they will roll it out to their Jet Connect fleet I mean that's you know yeah. it might be 2018 or 2019 whatever but it will happen at some point yeah I'd imagine what, that'll happen when Viasat launches the third Viasat 3 satellite which is currently um, planned for that sort of 2019-2020 window yeah but then the question is what happens to Jetstar right is mm. Jetstar gonna get domestic connectivity at all did they even announce anything about that and i'm i'm not really sure and if so will they get transtestment connectivity at some point or do they stick with their model of being like extremely bare bones and not offering anything at all that would be weird in the long run i think um because if in-flight wi-fi takes off then it would be hard for them to kind of totally pull out of that and not even offer something that you can buy as an add-on yeah you know because yeah. it, with jetstar obviously everything is an add-on anyway right exactly um well so uh, as i understand it Qantas um Qantas group ceo alan joyce has said pretty clearly that he expects um in-flight connectivity to have a uh, a complementary option on Qantas, but that it will be rolled out to jetstar um on exactly as you say a charge basis for everyone yeah um and i think that you can reasonably expect the uh, situation to be somewhat like what you get on JetBlue aboard Qantas, right? So you get a basic level of connectivity, which is sort of capped to usually stop you from streaming anything. And uh, if you want to, the streaming, it's, you know, something like $9 an hour or something, right? yeah. which is pretty reasonable. Um, now, as to when that rolls out compared with the Jet Connect option, that will be quite political, I think, for the New Zealand market. Um, if Jetstar has it before Jet Connect, um, I can I can really anticipate some wailing and gnashing of teeth, um, just just because of the you know the the, the fact that um, you know, one part of the Qantas group has it but the other part doesn't. Um, yeah, I mean Jet Connect is a weird little construction anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Because they kind of look and feel like Qantas, but they are le- just legally not Qantas because they operate on a New Zealand certificate. Right. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's um, and of course you know it, it may well be that it goes the way of Virgin Australia, right? Where um, you know Virgin Australia reabsorbed the former Pacific Blue uh, subsidiary into Mainland Virgin, 
um, and and now operates with uh, with 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 the Virgin Australia AOC. Um, yeah, but I mean that's probably not the main issue for for Qantas or the main reason why they do Jet Connect, right? I would expect the main reason is that they can get away with paying less for pilots and cabin crew. If sure. It's yeah. run as a New Zealand company, right? Yeah. So yeah. as soon as you move Jet Connect onto the Qantas Australia operating certificate, you still have to deal with the issues of you know people cost essentially and salaries and stuff mm. like that. But can you move them onto the A three eighty style? Um, cheaper cabin crew option when you do that is a really interesting question right yeah. Um, so yeah anyway it is it is just one of the many fascinating things about the trans hasma market um, and yeah that's uh, it makes, certainly makes it interesting to talk about um, and that's it for today uh, we certainly hope that you enjoyed our conversation and we're always keen to find out what you think please feel free to email me at john at runwaygirlnetwork.com with any suggestions. Thank you also to our guest, Kai Koenig. Kai, where can our listeners find you? Um, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm um, Agent K. So just tweet to at Agent K and it will get to me. Fantastic. As ever, you can find me on Twitter at ThatJohn and everything from RGN on Twitter at RunwayGirl and of course at runwaygirlnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>